Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I just want to start off by saying uh, that if you're joining us at Lakeside for the first time, or maybe you're connecting with us online for the first time, and, and maybe you've not been back to church for a lot of years, maybe this is actually your first time coming to church after wrestling with the idea of whether you really want to be here or not, and then your first Sunday back, we're talking about money and giving. And you think, great, I just finally came back to church to give it a second chance, and already they're on about my money. Well, just so you know, that's your fault. Um, (laughs) Here at Lakeside, we tend to preach through the Bible verse by verse or scripturally in order, and so we only talk about money when the Bible talks about money. And you just happened to hit on the one time in 2022 that uh, supporting the ministry financially has come up in our text. So it's not my fault. It is actually yours. And uh, you, could have picked, you could have picked any other Sunday to come to church, but you did not. And uh, so that's God's providence and um, your mistake. Um, but, but the Bible does talk about money in many different ways. And in part, how we give our money. And Jesus talks as much about money as he does any other topic because he knows the grip that money can have on us and the grip that we can have on money. We hold tightly to money because it is the symbol of all security and all things that we desire. And so everything... Like everything else in the Christian life, our finances and our relationship to money is informed and transformed by the gospel. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you put him first and he's the Lord of your life and you give up all the idol worship that goes on in our world, in, in, in putting our hope in other things, there is no way you can be a follower of Jesus and not have that transform your relationship with money. And that's a good thing because our relationship with money does need to be transformed. And in this final message from the letter to the Philippians that we've been studying the last seven weeks, this is the eighth week, we're going to look at how Christians give profitably. How can you invest in a way that is most profitable for you as a Christian? And there's four principles of Christian generosity that we can draw out of this text from Paul. Because once we set our life as disciples to follow Jesus, the way our personal economy works changes dramatically. Uh, or at least it should. And that's what Paul is explaining to his Philippian friends here um, at the end of uh, this letter. And, and we need this teaching. For the same reason that Jesus talked about money more than any other earthly topic, we know that we can misunderstand and get this wrong a lot. And, and even if we understand from a biblical perspective and, and know uh, how to get it right, the grip of it can drag us back into old habits of bad spending and bad investing. And so we need these principles, and we need to understand how they're rooted in the gospel and the good news of the work of Jesus Christ. And so, as I said, Paul, from this text, we can draw at least four principles of Christian generosity. The first one, God's provision does not exclude our participation. Material giving produces spiritual results. Material offerings become spiritual sacrifices, and every need is supplied from the riches of Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to be looking at today in Philippians 4, 14 to 21. And so if you want to turn to Philippians 4 or tap there on your phone, uh, and we'll look at verse 14. Let me just pray before we start. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this journey through this letter to the Philippians. 
Um, that, as we, we talked about at the beginning, is both a missionary update from Paul, uh, but also a letter to dear friends of his, also a uh, expounding on and expanding of the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the theology of who God is, and now returns, as usually he does in his letters, to practical application of how we live. We've looked at how we uh, think profitably. We've looked at how we live profitably, and now we're looking at how we give profitably. And so, Lord, just, uh, yeah, as, as Graham just prayed, take these truths, embed them in our hearts, and let us not leave your word unchanged. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, and so we're skipping over verses 10 to 13, which preclude these, where Paul talks about his, his learned contentment in all circumstances, contentment being the main theme of Philippians that we've already addressed a few times. And so I'm not going to dwell on that area, that our circumstances are not our source of contentment, our wealth or our poverty are not our source of contentment. Paul talks in those three verses about how he's learned to be either wealthy or poor and to be content in all circumstances. And then Philippians 4, 14 to 21 He goes on and says this to his friends. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first principle that we draw out of this is sort of a subtext or an overarching principle that runs through the whole paragraph. In fact, if you've been paying attention, it runs through the whole letter of Philippians. In this letter, we've seen Paul return again and again to touch on the paradox or the tension that exists between God's grace and our work, God's provision and our participation. And we can pull an example of that tension or that paradox from each of the first three chapters. Uh, In uh, Philippians 1.6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So it is God who is at work even as we are being sanctified. In Philippians 2, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're working, and God is working. And then in chapter 3, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I am pursuing my faith even as Christ Jesus is drawing me forward in my faith. And so there's this tension of God's sovereignty and our free will... His grace and our work, our striving to lay greater hold of Christ while he also has secure hold of us. And we run into this reality that that our dependence on God's power does not preclude our effort. Our working does not contradict God's grace, neither does our giving deny God's provision. And we see this kind of running through this whole paragraph that Paul writes here, that that God supplies every need, but it's the Macedonians who are giving. The, the Philippians are giving money, but it's God who supplies Paul what Paul needs. And so there's this understanding that God is working while we're participating. One Pentecostal pastor had 
very theologically sound understanding of this, and I'll, I'll frame the issue the way he did in our context. Here at Lakeside, in, in financial year 2022-2023, we have a $460,000 general budget. And that's despite COVID and inflation and the economy. It's still a $460,000 budget. It's not our highest, but it's great. And I can tell you this morning, in full confidence, even though we're not even halfway into our budget year, that God has already supplied our entire year's budget of 460000 He's given it all. Isn't that amazing? Fantastic. He's put it in your bank accounts. It's in your investments. It's a little piece of every one of your paychecks. It's in some of your stock portfolios. But God has given Lakeside all that we need to full supply this year. It's just in your pocket. And he has to kind of get it out of that in order for it to get into the storehouse of the church. You see, the point is that God's provision does not exclude our participation. That's what Paul is saying to the Philippians here. You are giving once and again, abundantly. I have all that I supplied. All that I need is supplied. But God is the one who supplies. God's provision does not exclude our participation. We have to seek the will of God and know what he intends for each one of us as he has provided in our circumstances. Not that everybody gives the same amount, the same ratio, the same dollar figure, but as we have provision, we provide. And we give God the glory for his provision. And let me brag a little bit about how good you guys are at doing that. I don't know who gives what. I never see the envelopes or the numbers. And so unless you tell me, I don't know how much any of you give. But someone out there gives because we make our budget every year and then some. And I rejoice. Like the apostle rejoices that we are well supplied. And if you're not participating in that, well, this message may be why you came today. Because there are principles for profitable Christian giving that Paul wants his Philippian friends to know. And so we see the first principle in the whole scope of what Paul is acknowledging here. The Philippians are supplying Paul. They are supporting the ministry. Paul is under no illusion in this final text here that it is the Philippian church are the ones that are giving the money. He acknowledges literally the bags of money that they have sent him to supply him and other churches. It's not pennies from heaven. It's cold hard cash from Macedonia. But Paul is also fully at peace and aware that it is actually God who is supplying what they have and therefore supplying what Paul needs. And it's always this way, that God is at work sovereignly according to his will, and yet in all matters, in God's will, whether you're talking about salvation or sanctification or supplying ministry funds, we are responsible even while God is sovereign. We are responsible for participating in what God is doing. The next three principles aren't sort of a meta-narrative. They come directly from the text. And the second principle is that material giving produces spiritual results. Paul says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. And even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Macedonia is the region or the area of the church that Philippi is most prominent in. Whenever you read Macedonia in uh, the New Testament, whether it's here or in Corinthians or anywhere else, it's kind of like Dysart et al., whatever that means. It's the whole area. 
And Paul is acknowledging the generous physical material provision that the Philippian church offered to him when he left to proclaim the gospel. Very early, he says, right at the beginning, this church was backing Paul all the way. They were the only church in the very beginning, in fact. And so there's this long, loving relationship between Paul as a missionary and the Philippian church, as we've seen in this letter. But what jumps out in this text and and informs our second principle here is that Paul writes, you entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. Now, if a missionary is writing back to his sending church and wants to thank them for their gifts, you think they would just say, thanks for your partnership and for giving to my ministry. But Paul does not say that. He says, thanks for the partnership that was in giving and receiving, because material giving produces spiritual receiving. The Philippians are receiving back from their giving. And he clarifies what he means in verse 17. He says, you sent me help even in Thessalonica more than once. But I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not the money that I'm after. I'm seeking the payback for you. It's not your giving I seek. It's your receiving that I seek, specifically that the fruit increases to your credit. And you really have to, you have to get a grasp of this principle if you're going to be joyful giver and give profitably as a Christian. You, you really have to understand that you are not just sending money out into the ether and nothing comes back. Churches and missionaries and Christian organizations that are serving the gospel, they don't just take the money and you don't see any significant profit. But if you give to the ministry of the gospel, and notice the context there. I skimmed it a little bit. Paul says specifically, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia. Don't miss that. You know around here we go on and on about the gospel, the gospel this, the gospel that. Yeah, it's because the ministry of the gospel is where the fruit is. That's what Paul's saying. You partnered with me in the ministry of the gospel. That's what this whole thing is about. That's That's where the profit is. And if you give materially to the ministry of the gospel, it produces spiritual results. It produces spiritual profit. That's what fruit means here. Fruit of the gospel is salvation. It's transformed lives. It's it's darkness lifted. It's chains broken. It's churches planted. It's disciples equipped. It's pastors trained and sent. It's friends and neighbors and families entering the kingdom of heaven. That's the gospel. That's the fruit that Paul is seeking. And that's what he gets all excited about. And that's what gets chalked up to the Philippians account. Paul says, you give to me, and it gets credited to you when the darkness is lifted and the bondage is broken and people enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's to your credit. The Philippians can't be where Paul is. They don't have the gift or the call that Paul has as a missionary. Not every Christian can serve in ministry directly. These Philippians, they live in Philippi. They're not in Thessalonica and Corinth and places like that. They have jobs, they have kids to feed, they have olives to pick and rocks to quarry and fields to harvest and clothes to dye and abacuses to calculate on or whatever it is they did in Philippi, I don't know. But but you just have a normal, everyday, faithful church of people there in Philippi just doing their everyday job. And as they pick olives, they set a little bit aside for Paul and for the church. And as they set aside a little bit of their olive harvest, and they set aside a little bit of their trade profits, and they give back that little bit to the church to support Paul, then as Paul and the church bears fruit for the gospel, the Philippians, who are still just working their normal job in the olive grove, receive spiritual credit in heaven for what Paul has done. It's a wonderful economy that God has created for us. And if you don't want to take Paul's word for it, you can hear Jesus himself explain the benefit of this deal. You go home today and read the parable of the shrewd manager in Luke chapter 16. 
Jesus says the exact same thing. You take the money that you have temporarily on earth and you invest it in kingdom rewards when the master returns and you no longer will be here. They give and receive. They give plain old money, which is utterly useless off this planet, and they receive spiritual credit in heaven, which is good for eternity, at the best possible rates of return. I remember we'd send Isaac to camp, and he'd want to get the tuck card, right? You get the tuck card so you can get the stuff at camp, and the money's only good at camp. Like, you can't take a tuck card and go down to the corner store and get any money. It only works at camp. And so we would have to pay forward into Isaac's account so that he could get stuff at camp. Well, this is like paying forward into heaven. This is like you get to heaven and you got like the ultimate tuck shop card <laughs> to get all kinds of stuff for like eternity. And, and they got more than just like Fun Dip and Twizzlers. Like I don't even, can't even imagine what we get with the credit that we've built up in heaven. It's got to be better than Fun Dip and Twizzlers. Right? And that's what Paul is saying here. You are paying this forward in ways and you get credit in spiritual results that you cannot even understand. And so principle two is that our material giving returns spiritual results, spiritual returns to our credit. The third principle, though, material offerings become spiritual sacrifices. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's more than just credit in heaven. It's more than just spiritual rewards. It is a fragrant offering and a spiritual sacrifice. Something that stands out in this text is the amount of business and accounting language that Paul uses. He says you're giving and receiving. There are the Greek words used for conducting marketplace trade. He says that their account will be credited. And now Paul says that he's received full payment. Uh, Like when you get your tax bill and at the bottom it says paid in full. And even more, you've overpaid your account. Don't you love that when your account is overpaid? Right? You get your credit card statement and it's like minus 300. It's like, wow, I must have overpaid. This is sweet. Now I can go spend 300 bucks for free. Um, that's not actually how money works, just so you know. Should clarify that. Don't want to confuse anybody. The minus 300 is not free. But that's what Paul says here. You've, you're paid in full. But there's also a transition taking place here. As Paul is talking about money throughout this paragraph, there's a transition taking place. He starts out talking about money, about giving, about receiving, and about accounts. But just as he showed material giving produces spiritual results, he expands further to say material offerings become spiritual sacrifices. So there's this translation, or there's sort of this, this change happening as you read through here. He's going from the material to the spiritual as he goes through the paragraph. It's transforming. Now, you might think that Paul is a bit biased here to put this spin on things, to tell people that their, their money is actually an offering, a sacrifice. And you might think, does God really, really accept our material gifts as spiritual sacrifice? Well, all Paul is doing is applying what God has said to his people for a thousand years or so. In Hosea 6.6, 6, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God says, I don't don't want your animals burnt on an altar. I want your actions of love, and I want your understanding of me. 1 Samuel 5, he says, Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, it's our participation that God wants. It's our participation in his life. In Isaiah 1, 11 to 20, if you want it in the negative, God spells out very clearly to Israel how their insincere and falsely pious offerings are not matched by material action, and that is completely unacceptable to him. He says he detests their feast. He literally considers their empty worship a burden that he is tired of bearing, and when they pray, he turns away from them. Because they are offering, they're still offering the burnt offerings. They're still offering the sacrifices. And God says, yeah, but you are not participating in what it is that I've called you to. And your sacrifices are not actually what I want. I want you. Psalm 15, 51 puts it this way. Certainly you do not want a sacrifice or else I would offer it. You do not desire a burnt sacrifice. The sacrifices God desires are a humble spirit, O God, a humble and repentant heart you will not reject. That's what God really wants. He wants our participation. But isn't our offerings a sacrifice? Isn't that what Paul is saying? Yes, it is. But given in the spirit of supporting the gospel, expanding the kingdom, not given selfishly for your own false piety, but humbly to seek justice and mercy and love, to reach the widow and the orphan, to meet the poverty of the world with the richness of Christ, then our offerings become fragrant to God. Elsewhere in the New Testament emphasizes the need for this sincere material or sacrifice. In Romans, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't just give your money, give your life to God. In Hebrews 13, 16, he says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, if you claim to worship God, if you claim to love justice, to do mercy, to meet poverty, to trust in the hope of the gospel, to want others to have that same hope that you have found, then let your material sacrifice become a fragrant spiritual offering to God. But Paul isn't actually, he's actually saying more to the Philippians and certainly to us than just that. The letter to Philippi was written shortly after Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we know that these letters were copied and circulated between churches. And Paul makes those instructions plain in some places. So so you have this Philippian church that's probably read Ephesians, and certainly we have. And and then you have this letter to the Philippians that they're reading. and, And you think, why does that matter? Well, because the phrase that Paul uses here for our fragrant offering to God is virtually a direct copy of his descriptions in Ephesians of Jesus' sacrifice for us. He says in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So either Paul knew the Philippians would have already read and studied this letter or the Holy Spirit knew that we would be reading it now. But either way, there's no question here that Paul saw the sacrifice of our Christian giving as a reflection and an imitation of the sacrifice that Jesus gave to us on the cross. Doesn't that sound like the gospel coming up again? 
We never leave the gospel. The gospel and what Christ did for us informs every aspect of the Christian life. And Paul says here, this aspect of the gospel should affect your giving because as Jesus Christ has given himself up as a fragrant and acceptable offering to God, you are to give materially as a fragrant and acceptable offering to God. Like that parallel is not an accident. It's incredible that we imitate the fragrant offering of Christ even as we simply give in an offering plate or to a missions team or to a church. Our automatic withdrawals, our e-transfers, go as a worshipful response to God. And it's just another way that we are taking on the likeness of Christ in his generosity towards us. We are generous towards him, his body, the church. The church is the body of Christ. So we have this incredible two-part principle that our material offerings are spiritual sacrifices. Even more, they are participation in the cross of Christ. And they're a participation in our putting on of his likeness. There's a final principle here. Every need is supplied from the riches of Christ Jesus. He says at the end, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To, God, our, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember I mentioned how Paul started this paragraph talking about material giving, and he keeps pressing further and further into the spiritual realities that are taking place in our act of material sacrifice. You put your money into the kingdom account, and it gets credited as spiritual fruit. You give sacrificially for gospel needs in full, and your giving rises to God as a fragrant and pleasing offering. Your material offering even rises to God just like the offering of Jesus. You're engaged in gospel and Christ-imitating transformation as you give, even as it seems very mundane and very pedestrian and very material. Paul says it's spiritual, it's spiritual, it's spiritual what you are doing. And now Paul comes back to that first principle again. All your material offering from earth to heaven, so to speak, actually comes from heaven in the first place. It's God who supplies every need of yours. It's God who supplies every need of mine. It's God who is supplying everything that you need in Christ Jesus. God gives first, and you return from what he has given, and then it counts to your credit, and then God supplies you again. It's an amazing economy that Paul describes here, that God has arranged for us. But do not... Do not get this confused with some sort of prosperity gospel. Paul is not promising that the Philippians will never experience material lack. He's not saying, give me $100 and you'll get $10,000. It's not a promise to never, ever, ever be in need again. We know that's not his promise. From Paul's extended discussion on giving in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, that the Philippians church continued to give generously from what they had even when they were in great need. Paul knows poverty strikes believers. Paul knows that poverty can affect the church. But remember, he's moving from material to spiritual throughout this text. And he knows that our true need is not material, but spiritual. And the whole letter has been emphasizing right from the very beginning. It's not our material circumstances that bring us joy, contentment, and security, or peace. It doesn't matter that Paul's in jail. It doesn't matter that the Philippians are under persecution. It doesn't matter that there's division in their church. It's not their circumstances where their rejoicing comes from or where their hope comes from. Even unto death, our rejoicing and security is in Christ Jesus. God supplies everything, even in our 
illness and poverty and death to the very end, everything is supplied in Christ Jesus that we need. Not everything we want, but everything we need for eternal riches and glory. And more than that, everything is supplied in Christ Jesus through the body of the church. Jesus said two very interesting things in Matthew 19. He said, first of all, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It's hard when you're rich to realize you need God. But then on the other hand, in verse 29, he said, whoever has lost houses or family, mother, father, children, lands, whatever you've lost, you'll receive it a hundred times in the kingdom of God. Some of you maybe have had to give up family and friends. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost an investment. Maybe you've lost a house or lands, whatever, for the sake of your faith. And yet, wherever you go in the world, I tell you, you can find a Christian church where you can spend the night. You can find Christian households where you can find eat and drink. You have brothers and sisters in Christ a hundred, a thousand times over in the richness of the kingdom of God. God supplies all your needs spiritually in Christ Jesus. He provides all the comfort you need regardless of your circumstances. And he provides, as you give into the gospel ministry, he provides a kingdom of God here on earth that can care for you and supply for you. The church is the general, normal, common means of God's grace and his riches towards us and everything that we need. Where do you put your sense of wealth? Do you put your sense of wealth in money or in Christ? This is not a promise that God will fill up your bank accounts if we give. It's a promise that if Christians are generous, they will inherit the riches of the glory of Christ Jesus. In fact, it's because we are already rich in Christ that we can safely give generously from what God has given us because our hope is not in how big our bank account is. Our hope is in how big our God is. Paul tells the Corinthian church, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by you his poverty might become so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give you my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not of course according to what he does not have. Now, what does that mean? That's kind of complicated, pulled out a topic there, or out of context. Paul's talking about giving. He's talking about the giving that the Corinthians had promised to do. And his encouragement here to them is that Jesus became poor so that you might be rich in the Lord. He says, you Corinthians pledged to give your offerings a year ago. And so if your hearts are ready, then do it. Complete what you pledged. Because if the readiness is there, then the offering is acceptable. It's a fragrant and acceptable offering to God, no matter the size of it, but according to what you have, give sacrificially, and it will be an acceptable offering. And at that point, you could come full circle back around to Philippians and say, and then God will supply everything that you need in Christ Jesus. You see, it's interesting here that that Paul's instructions to the Corinthians is to a hesitant church. The the Philippians gave out of their need, he says, just a few sentences earlier than this in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, even in Macedonia, when when they were in great need, they continued to give. And they they partnered with me in the gospel from the very beginning. And I've been supplied and well supplied, we just heard from him writing to the Philippians. And now he's writing to the Corinthians. And this is a church that's hesitant. He says, you don't understand. You are rich in Christ because Christ became poor for you. 
And you pledged this a year ago. A year ago you started to do this work, and I still don't have the money. And so make your readiness and desiring it be matched by your completing it. Don't just pledge it. Don't just talk about it. Don't just, you know, this is basically Paul saying, put up or shut up. This is Paul saying, don't let your, your mouth write checks that you won't actually cash. Be committed to what you have said. This is, this is the same thing as in the Old Testament when God says to the people of Israel, I don't want to hear your empty prayers. I don't want to hear the empty talking. I don't want just, you know, the burnt, you know, following the, the sacrifices. I want you to actually love justice and do mercy and serve me and participate in my kingdom work. Because God has supplied everything that we need. Christ was rich, but he became poor so that we would be fully supplied. And so for Christians, we know in giving that every need is supplied from the riches of Christ Jesus. And we need not worry because God has our future. So we have these four principles of generosity. God's provision does not exclude our participation. Material giving produces spiritual results. Material offerings become spiritual sacrifices. And in the end, God has supplied everything through Christ Jesus. And so I have to ask you, Christian, is the gospel informing and transforming your budget? Does it inform and transform the way you look at money, where your money goes, where it's invested? Are you imitating the fragrant offering of Jesus' work on the cross, his humility and poverty? Are you emulating his sacrifice that was an offering to God and giving of your life and your time and your money as a pleasing and acceptable offering to God in the same way? You have been made rich in the poverty of Christ. Are you giving from that richness? Not giving what you don't have. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. Not giving according to what you don't have, but according to what you do have. Paul never asked for that. He never asked for you to give what you don't have. But are you giving from what you do have? Some don't even do that. In order to receive that promise that everything we need will be supplied by our Father in the glory of Christ Jesus. Because that promise is there. Not a promise you're going to get rich, not a promise that you're going to get healthy, not a promise that you're going to be safe and happy for the rest of your life, but a promise that through Christ, God will supply everything you need. That's what Christians have to consider. But maybe some of you aren't believers yet, and so I have to ask non-Christian, are you tired of being poor? Are you weary of poverty? And I'm not talking about financial poverty. As we talk about in a few times here, and we're going to talk about more in the future at Lakeside, poverty takes many forms. Are you tired of being spiritually poor? Are you tired of being emotionally impoverished? Are you tired of being relationally lacking? Are you tired of being soulfully bankrupt? There's a message here for you too. Paul said it at least three times. Christ became poor so that you might become rich. Christ humbled himself that you might receive his glory and righteousness. All you need spiritually is supplied in Christ Jesus. And it is a gift given as freely as our offerings on Sunday. As you give freely to the church and don't expect anything back, Jesus gave himself to the world for anyone to receive the offering of his life on the cross as a gift of salvation. You don't pay for it. You didn't do anything to earn it. There's nothing you need to do to deserve it. You don't have to qualify for it. Jesus gave himself for you. Receive that gift. Let's pray.
Father God, we are, we're humbled that you were so rich, as Philippians 2 talked about in great detail. You did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You had the riches of heaven and eternal and eternity of partnership and oneness and communion with the Father and the Spirit in your perfect triune being. And you did not consider that richness of heaven a thing to be grasped tightly. Yet you loosened your grasp of that and you humbled yourself and you became poor for us. And so, Lord, don't let us hold tightly to the meager things we consider wealth here in this corruptible world. How dare we hold tightly to finances and to cottages and to boats and to trips and to clothes and to cars? How dare we hold tightly to those things when you did not consider heaven something to hold tightly to? Loosen our grasp, Lord, so that we can give to your kingdom. We can give a fragrant offering as your life was a fragrant offering given to the Father that rescued us. That as you became poor to rescue us, we become poorer to rescue others. Not to give out of what we don't have, but to give out of what we have. That we would receive credit, that we would receive riches, that we would receive profit we cannot even imagine in transformed lives, in the gospel going forth, in darkness being lifted, in lies being replaced with truth in lives being reconciled. What better place could you invest in? Where else could I put my money that gets me that? So, Father, we all have heart work to do to just come privately before you today and the days to come to think, how does my stance towards money change because I'm a follower of Christ? And how do I obey these commandments, to be pleasing to God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.